You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Your Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. And today I'm here with a Q&A, Scott Drockle, man. Did I say this already? I That in sixth grade, I had a science teacher who said, you know, Drockle man is not very politically correct. So we're going to refer to you as Scott Drockle person from now on for all of sixth grade. No, they I didn't. was Scott Drockle person. I had a science teacher, a male science teacher in middle school. And he wore his pants so tight. Oh. We called him Florky, but I can't remember. <laughs> what does that mean? His last name was like Florkovich or something. Uh, okay. Did you like the tight pants? No. I, I'm not a that's not my thing. Like I'm not a like I don't need to see your bulge. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could have liked his butt. You could have, you know. Yeah, I mean, I respected it. He definitely worked out. (laughs) I respected it. He definitely worked out. Ask me what I remember from his class. Not a damn thing. (laughs) Nada. Great. Ashley, Ashley, uh, our Q&A today came from a conversation that we have talked about before you and I, Mm -hmm. that people often come to you and they say, uh, what made the last time different? So for you, I guess, what did make the last time different? Why, Why was that the time that stuck? Okay, so... I'll answer this question in two ways, right? I'll answer the question from my experience, my personal experience of my story. And then I will give some background from the professional, you know, clinical answer. My personal answer for my own recovery story was that I had been trying to drink. I was aware and clear that drugs were a, a problem. I shouldn't say you don't shoot heroin and not know you have a problem, but I <laughs> I mean, you don't shoot heroin or you know you have a problem. You know, I it was the, the the illicit drugs not hard to see that I had a serious serious problem. The alcohol was interesting because alcohol was always there and it was always underneath everything and I drank extremely alcoholically, but I I describe it like this. You know you brushed your teeth all of seventh grade, right? Like you you know that, but you don't remember an instance of brushing your teeth. Well, that's how alcohol was for me, which was I drank, but it was not memorable. It was just like, oh, I'd take a swig here. I'd take a swig there. Oh, I have a bottle of wine, like a water bottle of wine to school. Like, oh, I have bottles of alcohol in my sheets. But I know that sounds crazy because I'm in, you know, middle school and early high school and that sounds crazy. But because I was doing illicit drugs, it didn't seem like that big of a thing. You wake up and you're doing cocaine and then going to school. The fact that you also drink 
some red wine is not really hitting the radar. I did not understand how severe that basically my every everything that's addictive is addictive to Ashley. And this is the case for most people, but I mean, not everyone, but it is for, for the majority of us. I was really trying to prove I'd been to all these treatment centers and I had stayed sober for periods of time. And I was trying to prove to myself once again that I could drink and not do drugs. I was relapsing on alcohol and then getting into these horrific situations. But then at some point I would get sober again and then I would make make the decision. At, at one point I made the decision to start drinking again and drink like a normal person. That did not happen. What ends up happening is whenever anything stressful happened, my drinking would greatly increase. And there were, <laughs> there were a few times, memorable times on this journey to the end. One of which was a friend, a guy friend of mine came over to check on me because he hadn't heard from me in a little bit. And I lived in this house by myself. He comes over and all the lights in the house are off. There's music blasting. It's Kenny G. Okay. <laughs> and he described he described it for you. It was so awesome. He comes into the bedroom. I'm in bed listening to Kenny G at like a He's like, it was so loud. Like I couldn't think. All the lights are off and I have bottles of wine. I'm just drinking bottles of wine in bed by myself listening to Kenny G. Not normal at 18. Just FYI, not normal. But then I would come out of that and try again, try again. I have a couple of some of serious benders in Las Vegas and other places because I did have an ID to go to Vegas. I spent a lot of time in Vegas and I returned from Vegas after New Year's. I was in Vegas for New Year's and I just turned 19. I found out that my boyfriend had been sleeping with a friend of mine. When I found out this information, I was not intoxicated. But my solution to this pain at this moment was I need illicit, I need heroin. Why that's important to this story is that in the moment, I didn't need to be drinking to make this leap, like to be vulnerable to this type of decision making. It didn't matter that I wasn't drunk at the moment. The fact that I had primed my brain and been drinking and been in this addictive cycle allowed my brain to know that intoxication at some level was an option. And at this moment, because I was in so much pain, I wanted the truly anesthetizing agent that uh, I was familiar with, right? I infect all the veins in my arms. I lose my vehicle. For a period of time, I lost my vision and my hearing. I was in some dirty trailer in Phoenix down on Van Buren, which I don't know if that's still gnarly, but it was gnarly at the time, by myself with dirty needles. And it was an absolute disaster. And I went into that decision not having put alcohol in my body. And it's a two-hour drive from where I was. And I was not loaded the whole time. When I needed that that anesthesia, when I needed my drug of choice or my drug of no choice, as people say, it was that quick. Like, and, and the decision was made. Once it's made, it's made. That's that's it. There was I, I made the decision. I also had the thought as I was driving down was I I I know this is going to be bad, but I'll go back to recovery. I'll go back to AA. I'll go back to recovery in a week. I'm like I'll get loaded, whatever. Blah blah blah. Go back to recovery in a week. I know what to do. What ends up happening is you know, a horrific scene where I end up in the hospital and, you know, all the veins in my arms are infected. My mother has to come out to Arizona after getting a phone call from my boyfriend about my situation. And I'm in very sick and in a lot of pain. I'm sitting in this hospital bed and 
going, what am I doing? Like this, I I can't even use for a week. Like that was my thought. Everyone's like, you're going to die. You're going to lose an arm. You're going to blah, 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 whatever. And I'm like, I can't even get loaded for a week without ending up in the hospital. Like I'm not even good at this anymore. I just had this realization after all these treatment centers, all this stuff, like just so much, so much had happened. I just, it hit me like it's just not working anymore. None of it's working. None of it fucking works. And I I had this vision of my life where I had just given my whole life to this disease, just given my whole life and my whole, and for me, my whole childhood. All these stories, all this bullshit, like it's all as a result of this deep, empty hole I've been trying to fill with drugs and alcohol, and it wasn't working anymore. Because I knew where to go, because I had lots of friends in the program, because I had a history, like I had all the education, all the knowledge, all the things, I knew where to go. When I hit that bottom, that emotional bottom, which for me wasn't the worst thing that had ever happened to me by a long shot, but I just emotionally was like, I'm fucking done with this. I can't do this anymore. I think the confusing part for many people, and I know for my family, is like, yeah, why didn't that happen 10 times ago? <laughs> it's not the first time I've been in the hospital where my mom's there and, you know, like, so for, for other people, bad enough has happened many times. And they're going, why wasn't this bad enough? This should be, this should really do it this time. It isn't about that. It's about the confluence of knowing where to go, having enough information, being done, like really seeing it as no longer a viable option. It's not working anymore. And then also couple that with the information of where to go. Because I think people do get to, I can't live with it. I can't live without it but they don't know where to go. And so they just keep doing the same thing. And had they had more belief in what to do next, they might not have gotten sucked back in. I really think that the fact that I had already established some amount of community several times trying to get sober and being sober for periods of time allowed me to transition back. And then I made a pact with myself, which was I was going to do everything they told me to do, they being smart, you know, whatever, the, pe- the people I was in mentorship with, and not add a single idea of Ashley's, not 99% their way, not 98%, 100%. Ashley's ideas are going to be put to the side and we're going to see what happens. So I did that. Turns out works better. And then I also made, so I know you're all, your eyes are getting big, but I still wasn't sure if I was an alcoholic. I ended up leaving Arizona, moved back to California, and I'm still unclear as to whether or not I'm an alcoholic, but I made a pact with myself. In the big book, sorry, those of you who hate 12 step, just go with me here because this is what I had at the time. In the big book, it says, we admitted to our innermost selves that we were alcoholic. I made a pact with myself that I was not going to get loaded. I would not drink until I was sure that I was either not an alcoholic or I was an alcoholic. It was the certainty that I needed. Two years in, I mean, the denial, guys, is (laughs) Not just a a river in Egypt, you know? No, no, not just a river in Egypt. So I'm doing step work. I'm going to meetings. I'm hearing story, you know, like I'm participating. I'm Ashley alcoholic, all the things. But two years in, I'm doing step work with my sponsor and I'm writing down how I used to wear diapers and because I would drink too much. And so instead of not drinking too much as a teenager, I would just put on adult diapers and all this stuff. And I'm writing it down. I'm writing all these things I used to do with alcohol. And my little sister comes to town and she says to me, again, I'm two years sober and she's talking to me and I didn't remember this. 
she's talking to me about how I used to hide water bottles in my bed. Now she thinks, because she's five years younger, that this water, she thinks I'm very hydrated. And she's just mentioning this as like we're talking as a different part, you know, not not related to. And I come, I have these, I flash to all the alcohol I hid in my sheets and my pillowcases all the time as a kid. At that moment, at two years sober, I admitted to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic, that I had alcoholism. Now, that's wild, right? That's a wild thing. But what it did for me, what I what I allowed myself to do, which was a great decision, was to be okay with whatever uncertainty it was and continue to be in sobriety until I figured it out. Because what I said to myself was, if I am an alcoholic and I want to drink again, I'll give myself that permission. But at least I know. I'm going to decide one way or another, but I need to know with certainty what I'm doing. I think that it's really hard when you aren't in this disease to understand how it could possibly take me another two years to admit to my innermost self. I mean, it was bad enough that I was willing to get sober and do everything they were saying. I was willing to do all the work. I did all the work. I showed up all the things. But in my head, I still was like, I don't know. I don't know. I was so young. So young. I mean, normal kids, kids experiment, blah, 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 blah. When people ask me like, what did it take? I mean, God, it took so much and it took so many times and it continues. Like I continue to require reminders. So that's Ashley's experience, right? The experience of many people when people ask the question of what was different this time, what they're really asking me is what's the recipe for other people for it to be different. And I I get it. I get the desire to find what it's going to be for them. And as I said, each time a bad thing happens, that's enough for your family for you to get sober, right? Like that's your family is on, you know, typically, typically you have your, you have your special families. It is inconceivable to your family why that isn't enough. Understandably, each person has to get to a place where the whole thing is no longer working for them. And they say like, I can't live with it and I can't live without it. You know, God as gift of desperation, that gift of desperation that comes with that, you know, your bottom is when you stop digging. It's a moment. We call it a moment of clarity because it's a moment. It's not an hour. It's not a day. It's not a week. It's a moment. If you can capture that moment and convert it to a plan with different options and decisions to heal that broken part of you that you're trying to heal with drugs and alcohol, then you have a shot at recovery. You have a chance at making a different decision. But if you have a moment of clarity that things are really bad and then you are also having withdrawal symptoms and you also owe all this money and you also don't know where to go and you've also burned every bridge and like all these things are piling up for you, that moment's going to pass you by and you're just going to go back to doing the same thing until the next really bad thing is and you have another moment. The part that's valuable for families to understand is to be resources, be a, a, a source of resources that people can go to when they have that that moment of clarity to let them know, I love you. I'm here when you want to make a change. Not, you really need to stop this really bad. Like, we know. We get it. Really, seriously, we do. We're with you. But knowing that we can pick up the phone and call if we have a moment and that you're not going to, that that moment with us is going to be solely about finding us help. Please help us. Those are the types of things that you can do when when your person, whoever that is, is 
struggling with that moment is being supportive, having resources, telling them, look, I'm not I'm not going to support your using your addiction. But if the moment you want to get into recovery, I'm here, I will support whatever you need to do to get into recovery. And just being along their side and reminding them that you love them. My parents have been amazing. They were amazing throughout my journey supporting me and were they perfect? No, but they they did their best and I knew they were doing their best and they reminded me that I was loved and that any moment I needed help. There was a moment where if I went back with this guy, if I got back together with this guy after treatment, my family was going to have nothing to do with me. And I I chose to get back with him for a period of time. You know, my dad, my family, I, I don't know, I don't remember if I was in contact with the rest of the family, but I know my dad was not speaking to me. The day that I was like, this is terrible, I'm not doing this. I picked up the phone and called him and I said, I broke up with him. It's not happening again. I'm so, you know, like I'm still sober. He got on an airplane and came to Arizona. That day, I'll be right there. And um, like I had picked this person over him after years of therapy, like just, and that day he got on an airplane and he came, said, I'll be right there. And we just spent the weekend. I have pictures of our weekend. We went canoeing and like, I don't remember. I think he probably helped me like, you know, be a grown up and stuff, probably fucking fed me or something. And, you know, and I was a complete shit show and I didn't deserve any of that. My family just, they showed up and they reminded me I was loved and they supported my recovery. And if I was willing to be in recovery and if I was willing to make a different decision, they weren't always holding the other decisions over my head. It doesn't mean they weren't pissed at me, but they they showed up. And that for me has sustained my ability to be able to say I need help for the last almost 18 years. When I need help, it's okay for me to ask for help because I know that I know that there's a place for me to land even when I'm fucking it up royally. You know, that's easier when you're a kid, the kid. It's not as easy when it's the spouse or the sibling or whatever. So I, I, I'm aware of that. But those moments of clarity when you ha- when your person has that moment, capture that and get the commitment to make the change with the resources and remind them that you're only supporting their recovery, not their addiction. So if there's something, you know, that supports their addiction, you're not, you're not going to do that. There are are a lot of amazing people living with children and spouses and siblings and parents who are in active addiction and learning how to live their own lives while also struggling with their loved one. Going to Al-Anon, going to Naranon, going to ACA, going to all these family support programs. Uh, Lion Rock Recovery has a family program that is weekly. There are so many different resources for families filled with family members who are learning to live their life alongside someone who they love who's in active addiction. It is unimaginably difficult to try to live a happy life when you have someone you love, especially a child, who is hurting themselves. And yet I see people doing it. I hear stories of people doing it. And it doesn't mean that they don't care and it doesn't mean that they aren't there to help, but I see them doing it. And that gives me hope, honestly, for what I may encounter. And so if that's you, I highly recommend finding a support group because the trauma that the family, 
deals with is significant. And a lot of the techniques for managing it are not obvious. So please seek out some sort of support with people who are going through a similar thing, with people who have the same challenge. That will help tremendously. And if you need any support with that, feel free to reach out to me. My email is podcast at lionrock.life podcast at lionrock.life. Please reach out to me. I'm happy to point you in the right direction and I do respond to my email. All right, friends, hang in there. We'll talk to you soon. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.